when I'm sitting with a client, I'm not only listening to what they're saying, but also I'm trying to thematically fit their story into a, mm. a narrative or a theme. And I think that's super, super important. Yeah. You know, to not only get the details, but get that 20,000 foot view, the gestalt of someone. Like, mm. who are you? What do you stand for? Why are you who you are? What made you who you are? People like to, they like to spout off about their victories, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that, you know, when you talk about your victories, really it's a mirror to tell me about what your wounds are. Yeah. Right? And what your insecurities are, maybe. So I'm less interested in where someone has excelled and I'm more interested in their wounds. Because I think in our woundedness, especially early on, it really sets kind of the course for who we are. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. And I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. It's not every day that you get to sit down with a psychiatrist who does sessions on a paddleboard in the middle of a river. But honestly, Dr. Neil Bomar is one of a kind. Today, we're bringing you a conversation with another one of our on-site clinicians. Dr. Bomar serves the clients at Milestones, on-site's residential trauma program, and he sat down with Lindsay and I for a practical and engaging conversation. We're excited for you to get to know Neil and the unique way that he approaches life. Honestly, our conversation ran the gamut. We talked about holistic health, emotional wellness, parenting, collectively living through a global pandemic and the effects, and viewing the narratives that mark our stories with a graceful lens. You're going to want to buckle in and maybe even take notes. Meet our friend, Dr. Neil Bomar. Dr. B, we're so excited to have you here. Welcome. I'm so excited to be here. This is the first podcast I've been on. So Ever? Oh. No, 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 no. A bit uh, on-site related, like, podcast pod. I've been on gotcha. webinars and stuff like that. But yeah. I haven't gotten to sit with you guys and do this. So, so fun. Kind of. We'll see. I think it's going to be good. We're <laughs> okay. excited to have you. And good. I think you have so much to add to this conversation. And our listeners are just going to love getting to hear from you. So, mm. settle in. I'm settled. I have matcha, green tea with a little bit of honey. So I'm good. You're relaxed. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about who is Neil and how did you get here to Onsite? Wow. So I I feel like one of my core wounds is that I'm misunderstood. Mm. And I think I'm misunderstood because like I'm kind of all over the place. I don't know. If you think about ADHD, like somebody with like who is impulsive very fun-loving, uh, very much a seven on the Enneagram. You're a seven, Mackenzie. I am. Yes, I'm, I'm here to balance out all the seven energy. <laughs> Too much seven energy. A seven and, being the enthusiast on the Enneagram. Yeah, yeah. And um, so I get bored easily, mm-hmm. right? And so I, I find myself throwing myself into different hobbies and buying all the gear and really just kind of going down that rabbit hole. And then like, oh, what's the next big thing? And so that's kind of played out in my life especially professionally, yeah. where it has not played out is in my marriage. I've been married 26 years. 
Yes, it's the one area that's not. Exactly. That's good. Your, your wife, Julie, is your grounding force. Precisely. Yeah. Um, but outside of that, you know, uh, and outside of my kids, of course, being a grounding force in my faith, being a grounding force, like everything else is on the table. Mm. Right. And so, yeah. So with hobbies, uh, but also it's shown up professionally. I've had fits and starts early on in my professional career. I, Thought I wanted to go into urgent care and work in mm-hmm. like a walk-in clinic and do emergency medicine. And yeah. that got interesting for a while. And then that got kind of old. So and is it that things start to feel stale? For me, autonomy and freedom are kind of everything. Mm-hmm. And so so professionally, and then creativity uh, is a big deal. And so sitting in a walk-in clinic where people walk in with colds and sprains and broken bones, there's kind of little autonomy. Like I can't go out and like you know, do yoga in the backyard, right? Mm -hmm. I'm stuck in this clinic. You clock in, you clock out. And then there's, there's just not a lot of creativity in that process. And so then I did a residency in occupational and preventive medicine at the University of Kentucky and thought it'd be really interesting to work in uh, an industry. So I was a corporate doc at Toyota for a while. And that kind of got dry for me too. Yeah. And so right after 9-11, you know, it, it, these big events, right? Mm-hmm. 9-11, the pandemic, people start to rethink their lives. Yeah. And so I started to rethink my life and I was like, I want more creativity. I want more autonomy in my work. And that's, I just told my wife, I was like, I think I want to be a trauma psychiatrist. Hmm. She's like, what? And um, yeah, so we picked everything up out of Kentucky and moved back to Memphis, and I did a residency in psychiatry. And literally the first week of my residency, I'm like, I'm home. This is it. You know, this is what I'm meant to do. Uh, just the, 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 the language they were using, the uh, you know, understanding a person's, their whole story, mm-hmm. super important to me. And so then I kind of got, when I found out that I was in the right zip code of psychiatry, then I started going into different fields. And so... I've done child and adolescent psychiatry. I've done <laughs> alcohol and drug treatment. I've done yeah. geriatric psychiatry. Now, of course, I'm a trauma psychiatrist here at OnSite. And so psychiatry is is just absolutely fascinating. And so um, the joke I make to some clients is like, it's, it's kind of like the hair club commercial. You know, I'm not only the president, I'm also a member. <laughs> right. right. <And> so, <laughs> yeah. so I have been a consumer of mental health services, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's really shaped my story as well. What I love about all the things that you've done is that it's sort of you bring that all to mm. your work mm-hmm. at Milestones, um, the longer term residential trauma center here on yeah. our campus in Tennessee. And you look at your clients so holistically Mm. because you have this wide breadth of knowledge that you've accumulated over years, decades of work, Mm. you know, and that you bring that to them. And so you're not just thinking about their minds, but you're thinking about their minds and their bodies and their spirit and looking at them in their entirety to try to help them assess what changes need to be made to make them the best version of themselves. Well, thanks for saying that. So as as I think through what you're saying, I'm I'm thinking, wow, I one of the reasons I think that I'm a good listener is because for me, my issue is I don't want to be misunderstood. Mm. And so if someone's sitting across from me, I don't want them to think that they're being misunderstood. And also it, like it lines up for me professionally and 
cognitively because I get distracted easily. You know, people with ADHD get distracted, right? Yeah. And so when I'm sitting in a room with someone free of distractions and I can focus on their story, it, it's like I'm dialed in and I'm like trying to pick up on every nuance and every cue, every word. So when I'm sitting with a client, I'm not only listening to what they're saying, but also I'm trying to thematically put something, you know, fit their story into a, mm. a narrative or a theme. And I think that's super, super important, yeah. you know, to, to not only get the details, but get that 20,000 foot view, the gestalt of someone like, like, mm. who are you? What do you stand for? You know, why are you who you are? What made you who you are? And also the other, just the, the sacredness of being in a room with someone telling their story is, you know, in, in normal everyday life, people like to they like to spout off about their victories, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that you know when you talk about your fig- victories, really it's a mirror to tell me about what your wounds are, yeah, right, and what your insecurities are, maybe. And so I'm less interested in where someone has excelled, and I'm more interested in their wounds because I think in our woundedness, especially early on it really sets kind of the course for who we are. Yeah. I, I love how you can vocalize the your core wounding mm. of feeling misunderstood. Will you kind of explain the idea of core wounding for people that might not be familiar with that term and then talk about sort of how you saw that show up early in life and then mm. how you realized that that was sort of a message that you were constantly fighting? Yeah. So if you look at the textbooks on child and adolescent psychiatry, one of the the main things that they talk about is the idea of goodness of fit between child and parent. Okay. And Say so, more about that. Yeah. And so, you know, we are born with sort of an innate style. There, there's some things that are malleable, but there's some things that are fixed. Mm-hmm. And so there are some kids that innately are just wired differently than their parents. And if the parents uh, don't either know their child or don't kind of um, roll with the resistance and that kind of thing with their child, and if the parents try to put their kid in a box that the kid is not wired to be in, that's where the conflict starts, right? Mm. And that can be problematic. And and so that's one of the, you know, when we talk about trauma, there's event trauma, like there's a car wreck or a shooting or that, there's event trauma. But I think even more important and more impactful for people is the idea of narrative trauma, mm. you know, historical narrative trauma. Like, I grew up in this family. They didn't understand me. Uh, I was misunderstood or I was neglected or I wasn't, you know, valued for who I was innately. And because of that, I developed this broken narrative around who I am. And that's what I see more and more. And when people come to milestones for quote unquote trauma treatment and they think, gosh, I mean, I promise you 80% of people tell me this, they'll they'll be in their first group and they'll hear about someone's event trauma, Mm -hmm. which was some event happened to this individual is horrific. And they come back to my office and they sit in the chair and they're like, "I, I don't think I deserve to be here. I don't think my trauma is bad enough. And like, okay, let's talk about this, right? So you may not have had event trauma, but you've definitely had narrative trauma. And I, I think narrative trauma, oftentimes, we, and we, you know, within trauma, we call it complex PTSD. It's something that occurs over and over. And it's not just like one event, mm-hmm. and that's more deeply ingrained, mm-hmm. and it sets an individual's self narrative, and 
And many times when we have a broken self-narrative, it just persists through adulthood and it can be very damaging, very damaging on our mental health. And what are some of the ways that you see that play out for your clients at Milestones or even in your own life, what that narrative does and what our kind of take us down the road of what that looks like? Yeah, well, so I'll tell a little bit about my story. And my parents are amazing people. They're exceptional people. But, you know, just like any parents, I can look back and say, gosh, I wish mm-hmm. they'd done this differently. So a, a sentinel event in my life was when um, I was in psychiatric residency and my sixth grade teacher, who was my favorite teacher of all time, Mrs. Caperton, I love that woman. But <laughs> would she teach a subject? or? Oh, she, no, the whole, the, oh, the whole yeah. class. Okay. okay. Unbelievable. And so uh, we had so much fun in her class. And this was back when Saturday Night Live was really big. You know, and and so we would do these skits, right? And so I I became known as kind of this theatrical, yeah, surprising, right? Surprise. <laughs> uh, this theatrical person, and you know, and and so it just like every week we would get on stage and just do this crazy theatrical stuff, and I was like, wow, man, this may be something I want to go into. And so she came to visit me, and I guess I was forty, and we were talking, and she's like, you know, I I want you to I want to tell you something about what happened at a parent teacher conference. It's like, okay. She's like, yeah, your parents mm. came in and I told them you were doing pretty well and that you had this real pr- proclivity to like acting. And I, I told them that you might want to go into acting or something like that. And and your dad looked at me and said, no, my son's going to be a doctor. And she's like, well, you know, if he wants to be a doctor, he's going to be a doctor. And, mm-hmm. and she said, my dad said, no, he's going to be a doctor. So Was your dad a doctor? No, he was an attorney and a politician, which okay. says a lot. Um and so anyway, when I heard that, it's, it kind of threw my, you know, mm. my idea of myself and my d- choice of profession into a, kind of a, this tailspin. It's like, whoa, did I choose this or did they kind of, did dad choose this for me because he wanted me to be a doctor? I think dad was well-intentioned. Yeah. Like he was concerned that I was going to go to the West Coast yeah. and become an actor and like have yeah. a really miserable existence, right? Yeah. And so he's all about safety and stability. But anyway, it... It kind of it introduced this doubt, like, did I choose this or was this chosen for yeah. me? And so, interestingly, I do have an older sister. And guess what she does for a living? Also a doctor. She's a doctor. That's what I Because we know her. She's amazing. Right. Yeah. So anyway, it you know, dad's super competitive guy. And yeah. so losing, losing was kind of not an option back in the day. Mm. Um, and so it was not until I came here five years. So- as of July the 4th, I've been here five years, which is kind of great. That's great. That's awesome. And it was not until I got here and saw people working on themselves and working on their childhood and working on these kind of narratives and themes that that developed during their childhood that I really started looking at my, myself. Mm-hmm. And so I'm 55. I, I really feel like, and this is kind of embarrassing to say, but I really feel like I've only been working my, on myself for the last five years. Mm. Because prior to that, you know, medicine tells you it's all about the patient, put your Mm -hmm. patient first. Yeah. Never let them see you sweat. Failure's not an option, blah, blah, blah. You know, Grant and Barrett, all those messages I got in medical school. And um, and so I get here and it's just like it's gentle and it's affirming and it's authentic and it's transparent. And guess what? It's not competitive. And so I had to check my competitive spirit at the door because it was getting in my way of relationships. Mm. Like it really was. And 
and and the paradox of being competitive is sometimes those of us who find ourselves competitive if we just slow down and check that at the door and show up process oriented and not outcome oriented we get more done hmm. you know so that's one thing you guys are have taught me and are teaching me is like being competitive is a very lonely road it's very lonely I don't know. There's there's just something about being in an environment where people work on themselves. That's what I hear among the clients at Milestones, Mm -hmm. right? One of the most healing aspects is coming into an environment where you're not just like checking in with someone. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. Great. Good. You know? And then boom, that's that's the end of your, you know, that interaction. At Milestones, you spend 30 days, 45 days really getting to know people. Mm Mm-hmm. And doing like therapeutic work in a room with a group of people where you're transparent and you're vulnerable and you tell your story and you're not misunderstood, you know, or you're misunderstood less than you've ever been in your life. So magic happens down the hill, right? Yeah. It does. Mm-hmm. And and I'm a why guy. Like, why do people make incredible transformation in 30 days? Like I had a private practice in Memphis where I would see people for years and years and years. And I saw this small incremental change in my patients mm-hmm. usually. And I and I come here and in 30 days, people's lives are changed. I'm like, what is that? Is it the intensity? Is it the community? Mm-hmm. Is it the, the quality of the trauma thera- therapeutic services we offer? I think it's all of it. Mm-hmm. But spoiler alert, here we go. <laughs> I think the number one thing is community. So yeah. I've heard you talk about the physical, psychological, basically holistic benefits of community. Can you speak a little bit to that and what you believe? Well, so we did a digital class recently mm-hmm. on community and building community. There's a ton of research on community. Yeah. And so I got these books, uh, Robert Putnam, uh, Bowling Alone, uh, Johan Hari, uh, mm-hmm. Lost Connections. Mm-hmm. And there's actual research showing that if you join a group— and you're active in that group over the next year, your risk of all-cause mortality, your risk of dying by any cause is cut in half. That's insane. Yeah. It's crazy. Like, why? Right? And so uh, in Western medicine, there is this kind of quote-unquote truism that if you can't test it, it doesn't exist. Right? And Mm -hmm. so, so many of our clients, they'll go to their doctor, and their doctor's well-intentioned, and their doctor's very excellent at what they do, very well-educated, and they'll get a blood work panel and they tell me, you know, well, my doctor got blood work. He said my blood work's fine. There's really no reason for me to be feeling bad. Okay. I think that message is more therapeutic for the doctor than the client, right? Because the client still feels bad mm-hmm, right. and they have, they don't have an answer, right? So I think there are so many things like, like the hubris in the medical community, like in, in 20 years, if somebody listens to this podcast, they're going to crack up because- we don't know everything. Mm-hmm. We think we do, but we really don't. And so I, I think the idea of going into medicine with an intellectual humility is super important. Like there are things going on with my clients that I can't test and I don't know. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's super, super important. You know, and, and that's one of the great reasons I love to work with my sister. Like she's in functional medicine, I'm in psychiatry. We get two sets of eyes to to look at things. 
and she picks up on things that I don't, and I pick up on things that she does not. So, so yeah, I I just think all of that is important because you know, the way trauma sits in the body is so complex. Everyone manifests it differently, mm-hmm. right? There are different psychological symptoms, there are different physical manifestations, and it's and it's absolutely fascinating. But to see people get better is like that is my drug, right? Like that's my jam. Mm-hmm. I love when someone comes in and they're, I don't love that they're hopeless, but I love the fact that they come in hopeless and they come out hopeful. They come in with confusion and they leave with clarity, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm just, I'm a big fan of our program. Like It's, it's amazing, yeah. It, it, it is. And the creativity we're able to bring to our work down there at Milestones is really fun. Hey friends, Mackenzie here. I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Dr. Neil Bomar. I found it curious that Neil felt like his emotional wellness journey started in his 50s. Here he was, a doctor who focused all his energy on succeeding in his field and helping other people, resulting in him doing just okay. For so many of us, our lives are spent outwardly focused. And while well-intended, when we solely care for the people around us, we can miss caring for ourselves which ironically is a disservice to those that we care for. I found that being the healthiest me is the best gift I can give the people in my life. But I've also found that it's a hard narrative to shake and put into practice. That's why I want to make sure you know about our digital resources. At OnSite, we're on a mission to equip the world with emotional wellness, and we want to make the work approachable, accessible, and affordable. And that's exactly what our new emotional health masterclasses do. For just $69, about half the cost of a traditional therapy session, these digital classes include an hour of clinical expertise as well as an interactive workbook designed to ground, unpack, and apply the concepts to your everyday life. Right now, we offer classes on grief, trauma, shame, and narcissism. And as a podcast insider, I want to let you know that the prices on these classes are increasing to $89 at the end of August. So right now is your time to snag these incredibly impactful digital resources. Plus, as a special thank you for being a podcast listener, you'll save an additional $20 when you use the code PODCAST at checkout. Head to onsiteworkshops.com slash classes to explore more. Now, back to the interview. So you've been here five years. Yep. And I think what I would make up from what you shared at the beginning is that you start to get itchy. Yep. Something new. Right. Does the ability to not be like a little bit of a unicorn of a psychiatrist, like you can be out on a paddleboard with a client and you can sit with them for two hours and get to know their story rather post that 15 minutes. Like, what has that been like for you? Game changer. Okay, great. That's awesome. (laughs) Game changer. Like I I see Miles, our our owner, and I just want to, I want to give him a hug. It's like, I cannot believe I get to practice this type of medicine. I tell people all the time, I am the luckiest psychiatrist in the universe. Mm -hmm. Because the the freedom and autonomy, like, you know, w- right now we don't have over 20 clients in Milestones. Mm-hmm. And we are able to focus in a way that I've never seen in the industry. We're able to just give this curated, bespoke, individualized, you know, experience to each person. And each person needs something different. Mm-hmm. And for some people, we'll get on the water. We'll hike the creek. We'll get outside. Some people need some yoga. Some like it, it, we can do anything, you know, it, within that time frame. Mm-hmm. And so, one of the the necessities for each clinical staff down the hill is you have to be creative. 
Yeah. Like you're just not going to make it here if you're not, if you don't have some degree of intellectual curiosity and creativity. I love how much care and intention that you like get excited about that. And I think that obviously is reflected to your clients. And yeah, I just think that that's really beautiful that you get that. Like as a psychiatrist, get that excited to (laughs) to meet your clients. (laughs) Well, it's, I mean, people, especially when they come to milestones, they're carrying secrets, Mm -hmm. things that they have done that they're shameful of and things that have been done to them that they're shameful of. And shame is a, joy stealer. Yeah. It is a relapse risk factor. Mm. It is a risk factor for suicide. And so like we love to to address, we love to hit shame head on. Yeah. And you can't hit shame head on if you're judge if you're judging a client. Right. And that's, you know, my demo like growing up in southern middle Tennessee to a very conservative family and kind of stepping into working with people who come from very different backgrounds and their faith walk is very different from mine and their view on sexuality is very different from mine and their view on gender is very different. And just like, you know, their worldview and perspective may be very different from mine. Mm -hmm. I learned early on not to judge, just like get inquisitive. It's like people are fascinating. Yeah. For people that I think we all struggle with shame in different ways, you know, it holds us back. And I think the big lie of shame is that we shouldn't tell anybody the story, the thing Mm -hmm. that we're ashamed of. And then it sort of grows and festers. What are like practical ways and safe ways to start to dismantle the shame that's Mm. like trapping us inside of ourselves? Wow. So. The other kind of truism we say down at Milestones is you're only as sick as your secrets, right? Like, like you know, keeping secrets, especially shame-provoking secrets, is bad for your mental health, like we discussed. And then the other thing, a group therapy, like in a group. That's why people go to AA, NA, Al-Anon, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why groups exist. Uh, there is something about the group process that is super, super important. There's there's a book, um, one of the greatest psychiatrists all, of all time is named Irvin Yalom. And he wrote kind of the tome on group psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. And in it, he discusses like, why are groups effective? Why are groups successful? And one of the main reasons that groups are successful is the idea of universality. Meaning when you share something, it's, you know, oftentimes someone else will say, oh my gosh, I had the same thought, the same thing happened to me, I yeah. did the same thing. And so it's kind of the universal human experience. Yeah. We don't want to feel different or alone. Yeah. Right. And so the idea of universality in the group is super, super important. But then again, there's that risk that someone mm-hmm. in the group is going to share your secret. Right. So that's why a you know a therapeutic group, try to find a group. If you don't have that small group that a lot of people have, mm-hmm. find a therapeutic group. Because they can, yeah. like, it's super, super important because, you know, usually you will have a therapist leading the group. The therapist kind of knows what's appropriate, what's not, how mm-hmm. we interact. You know, there are rules of the group that are laid out early on. So, you know, I would have that individual you can share with. And then I think the group experience is super important. And then, of course, you know, many people have a faith tradition. Many mm-hmm. people have an idea of higher power. And that brings a lot, including me. It brings a lot of peace to share that with my higher power. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Like just to confess and repent. So, 
you know, I, I think, you know, higher power group individual, it's important. I wonder if you could talk about like the early imprints that maybe lead to shame or the early imprints that would tell me it's not safe. I mean, how do we start to overcome some of the fears that would be being vulnerable or talking about things when our earliest imprints tell us that there's not emotional safety, that it's mm. not um, okay to do that, or if we were in a family dynamic that like we don't talk about things, we keep things hush-hush. What are some of the things that you see with clients like that? You know, again, I'm going to go to the group. Like, yeah. it It's so important when people come into Milestones and they have that narrative and they have that belief, mm-hmm. and then they come into the group. And actually, it's funny you should say this because a, a client – Ed Milestones mentioned this to me today. She said, you know, I was really uncomfortable coming in here. I felt weird about discussing these secrets. And mm-hmm. I saw X, this guy mm-hmm. in her group, tell his story and the the depth of the pain and the depth of the trauma he, he had. And she said, you know, that really emboldened me to tell my story mm-hmm. and made it okay. So as you guys know, we can't do life on our own. Mm-hmm. We can't. I mean, that's a sucker's bet. We, you just cannot do life on your own. And one way I really knew that, like, I didn't know how depressed I was over the winter through the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I found myself isolating. Mm. And that is a red flag. That is, like, the number one red flag among our clients. Like, tell me about your relationships. Yeah. Well, with the pandemic, I didn't leave my apartment. And I just you know, watched Netflix and got food delivered. Mm. Whew, red flag. What are some other red flags that people... That might be socially acceptable or written yeah. off. What are some of the things you see? Well, you know, you just look at the classic symptoms of depression. Yeah. Anhedonia, not enjoying things that you mm. used to enjoy, right? What was that? Um, Say that word again. And anhedonia. And, and, and that means not enjoying things. That yeah, you so previously it's like did. losing your verve and zest for things that you used to enjoy. So when people start giving up hobbies, this mm. is classic. You know, I used to enjoy this, and now I just don't enjoy it anymore. I had, I had a client a few days ago. They just bought a house, and they love decorating. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, I just didn't really care about decorating the house, and that's so un- unusual for me. So, you know, giving up important hobbies, that's a big thing. Not getting out of bed, a big thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, not kind of exercising. That's, you know, or moving your body. Yeah. Right? Moving your body is so important. Changes in appetite. Eating more, eating less. Changes in sleep, sleeping more, sleeping less. So these are kind of the A, Bs, and Cs of psychiatry, right? But you have to ask about them. And then also, I I do like what I call a hope inventory, like hope, the idea of hope. Mm -hmm. The idea of like you think that the future is going to be better than, you know, your miserable situation right now. If you don't have hope, that for me is a big red flag for, you know, suicide. Mm. If people can't see their lives getting better, I get concerned. Yeah. yeah. And um, and so the loss of hope. So when I'm in with a client, uh, I'll ask them, well, t- you know, tell me what you're looking forward to in the next few months. You know, if they can say, well, you know, we do have a, a family vacation over Christmas I'm looking forward to. Or, you know, whatever. I'm looking forward to going back to school. Mm. But when there is no hope, yeah, that is very, very concerning. That was one of the things that felt really hard during the pandemic was it was so hard to project into some of those things that we'd had hope about in the future, whether it's a family. It felt it got where it felt so hard to make plans Mm -hmm. that you're just kind of like, I'm just not going to try anymore. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I've noticed as numbers are rising kind of again with this Delta variant yeah. that you're like, is it naive to be planning again? You know, like, should I be pulling back on that? But it is, I think that that's like making plans is so intrinsically tied for Mm -hmm. me to hope that that it's sometimes that is hard to balance. Man, I want to jump in on this. I think this is super important. Like I'm not cajoling my generation, but I'm encouraging my generation because when I think back in the eighties, when, you know, I mean, God, you know, the economy was roaring and, you know, I mean, at least maybe I'm romanticizing it, but, you know, those were (laughs) quote unquote good times, right? And the music was amazing, right? The 80s music, (laughs) the best. Um, I'm a millennial and I would agree with that. With some 70s in there too. But um, Mackenzie missed Mackenzie missed the eighties oh, altogether. So Completely, sorry. I wasn't even in the eighties, but sh- it's my favorite music. I'll share my playlist. My favorite movies and. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, I you know having that experience and mm-hmm. now going through the pandemic, I think those of us who are older really need to be careful about judging young people. Mm. They didn't have that experience. They grew up with nine eleven, and then you know racial, you know, uh, political turmoil, all this stuff. Social media. Yeah. Social media, right. Comparing, knowing what everyone else in the world is doing at every moment. Exactly. So, like, they don't need our judgment or our mm. disdain. They need our support. Seriously. I've been thinking about what percentage of, like, a kindergartner's life has been oh, in lockdown. God, can you imagine? Or in, 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 you know, this pandemic world where we're wearing masks and there's a lot of fear yeah. around that. Like, yeah, okay, it was a year of my life. Right. Out of 30 years. Yep. For a kindergartner, that's a fifth of their life Absolutely. that's been in this weird, uncertain, chaotic season. And yes. I just wonder what are going to be the long-term effects of a five-year-old, a four-year-old, a three-year-old who, in their earliest imprints, you're like you were saying, it's yeah. not an event. I mean, it's an event trauma, but it's right. a continually like but it's a daily not being trauma. able to regulate, right? <laughs> it, absolutely. Not having the safety and the privilege of regulating, I think, is interesting. And just the the thing we, we've discussed before, the idea of social attunement. Mm, yeah. Like, like, like we are wired. We to, describe what social attunement yeah, is. Yeah. So visually, when you're approaching someone, you're looking at their facial features, their mm-hmm. eyes, their facial muscles, right? You have yeah. a ton of facial muscles in your face to express. Yeah. To express fear, to express anger, whatever. And so when someone has a mask on, are you kidding me? That throws the whole idea of social attunement haywire. Yeah. And so you and I can discuss this intellectually, but kids experience it on a neurological level. Mm. And it's not okay. I mean, we have to do the mask thing, right? Yeah, but, yeah totally. But it, it does. There will be an impact. There will absolutely be an yeah. impact. What's the balance mm. between kids are really resilient mm. and also acknowledging and giving wait to our earliest experiences that may be traumatic? This How do you is, repair that rip, I guess? You know, here's so I'm a parent. I have a 15-year-old. I'm a 22-year-old. You know, it, prior to the pandemic, it's like, okay, I want him to be a national merit finalist, and I want him to blah, 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 blah. You know, right? <laughs> like, we have all these goals for our kids, right? Yeah. And this year, my goal for him was to get through the pandemic as socially connected with his peer group number one, and is mentally healthy, hmm. number two, right? Like like if we could avoid a deep depressive episode or if we could avoid, uh, you know, him experimenting with alcohol and drugs or if we could avoid, you know, you know, hopelessness, I counted that as a victory. Yeah. And so I think we have to reset our expectations, honestly. Mm. 
because kids are hurting, man. Mm-hmm. And and they may not, especially my son, like he's he he deals with pain stoically. Like he's not gonna tell you. He's just mm. gonna he's just gonna go go on. And um I, I think those of us raised in those eighties, like um, what was the the Wall Street movie, like Greed is Good, you know, and you know, failure's not an option. And those messages in my childhood that we were fed, that does not work right now. Mm. It doesn't work. And it's dangerous. What is like your advice for parents to how to like parent out of like a centered place? Yeah. Mm. Are there any like practical yeah yes. tools that they could do? So waste engage. So when I look at relationships with children, I look at time and intensity. Okay, and so if you're spending less time with your kid, the time you spend with them needs to be more kind of socially intense in the sense of. You know, you're sitting across from them at a table directly interacting with them or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. You're not distracted. There are parents who, like, maybe they're homeschooling and they have the luxury of spending a lot of time with their kids throughout the day. And so they have these touch points that may not have to be that intense. Mm -hmm. But it adds up to useful face-to-face interactions. And so, like, my goal throughout the day, you know, when I come home from work, I'm definitely either going to have dinner with my kid, I'm going to walk the dog with my kid, you know, we're going to do something together. Like, I, I want that, at least that one touch point of us looking each other in the eye. How you doing? How you feeling? Right? And so, <laughs> my son gets so tired of me. I, I guess being the, the, the child of a psychiatrist, it's not easy, but, you know. I'd imagine not. So, so the word good is mm. not allowed mm. because, it's, because it's not descriptive. It's like fine. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, man, how are you feeling? Good. Well, you, you know, you don't seem good to me. So let's talk about how you're feeling. So let's let's talk about mm. feeling words and stuff like that. You just and so you, you have to you have to dig a little deeper. And then and then the other thing that parents really have to do is don't ignore warning signs. Like if your kid is struggling, you need to ask them if they're safe. Mm. Honey, have you had any thoughts about death or suicide? So many parents think, oh, my God, if I bring this up, it's going to introduce the yeah. idea. No. They're on social media. They know plenty. What are those about. warning signs? Oh, wow. Um, several you know, super important ones. Disconnection from peers. Mm-hmm. Uh, disconnection from activities. Just kind of looking depressed, right? Mm-hmm. You have some kids who will act in and you'll have some kids who will act out. Right? The kids who act in kind of turn inward, they get quiet, they isolate. Kids who act out, you know, you, you're going to see behavioral outbursts, you're going to see oppositional defiant behavior, they're going to experiment with alcohol and drugs, they're mm-hmm. going to do stuff that's quote-unquote out of character for them. And I know it's super hard to find a therapist, but family therapy mm. is really, really important. Like right now, my, like we're doing pretty good. Okay, we're good. My family's good. I still, I'm looking for a family therapist. You're good? We're good. You You're not allowed to be good. <laughs> You're not allowed to be good. No, no, no. But exactly. Good's not the word. Um, but yeah. we are, like, I'm looking for mm-hmm. a family therapist because, like, I want my, my especially my 15-year-old to have an outlet that's not yeah. just mom and dad. Yeah. Right? Like, so, so in a traditional, like, if you're looking for a family therapist, does yeah. that mean you would go as a family unit? Oh, absolutely. Or, yeah. Yeah. Typically, so he, we have a minor. He's 15. But um, typically, the the therapist would interview the parents first, and then bring the child in. And so, you know, one of the quotes that I have lived by, I, I kind of get tired of hearing myself saying it because 
you can take it too far, but the good is the enemy of the best, mm. right? Like I think families limp by on good or acceptable, yeah, and they don't step into further work to kind of get to the best. Mm. Like just communication is everything, just among humans, among families. Like if we communicate, things t- typically just get so much better. And so, um, so I, d- I just want to encourage everyone, even if you feel like your family's in a quote unquote good place, just step into something a little deeper, a little more intensive. Get yeah. a, get an outside set of eyes to look at things. A, a therapist who does this professionally, and you may find your kid like we just recently found out. My fifteen year old, he's got you know something he's dealing with that mm-hmm. my wife and I were not even aware. Yeah. Like, wow, we knew that that was potentially an issue, maybe a, a one or two out of 10. We didn't know it was a seven or eight out of 10. Mm. Yeah. So um, I think having an outside set of eyes is a good idea. That's great. Yeah. This has all been so helpful mm-hmm. and practical. And I always good. love the opportunity of just getting to sit down and learn from you. And- oh, or well, we learn from each other. Yeah. You know, definitely. we do. Thank you. Thank Dr. you so Dr. much Neil. for sitting down with us. Thank you, guys. Awesome. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.